Chapter 15 of Mr. Incool's Misadventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. Please visit my blog at mattbutchershop.blogspot.com. Mr. Incool's Misadventure by Edgar Saltis. Chapter 15. May expostulates. That evening the Wainwarings and the Blydenburgs dined at the house in the Parc Monceau. The Blydenburgs had long since deserted Biarritz, but the return journey had been broken at Luchon, and in that resort the days had passed them by like chapters in a stupid fairy tale. They were now on their way home. The pleasures of the continent had begun to pall, and during the dinner Mr. Blydenburg took occasion to express his opinion on the superiority of American institutions over those of all other lands. An opinion to which he lent additional weight by repeating from time to time that New York was quite good enough for him. There were no other guests. Shortly before ten, the Wainwarings left, and as Blydenburg was preparing to take his daughter back to the hotel, Mr. Incool said that he would be on the boulevard later, and did he care to have him, he would take him to the club, a proposition to which Blydenburg at once agreed. Harmon, said Maida, when they were alone, are you to be away long? During dinner she had said but little. Latterly she had complained of sleeplessness, and to banish the insomnia, a physician had recommended the usual bromide of potassium. As she spoke, Mr. Incool noticed that she was pale. Possibly not, he answered. She had been standing before the hearth, her bare arm resting on the velvet of the mantel, and her eyes following the flicker of the burning logs. But now she turned to him. Do you remember our pact? she asked. He looked at her but said nothing. She moved across the room to where he stood. One hand just touched his sleeve. The other she raised to his shoulder and rested it there for a second space. Her eyes sought his own. Her head was thrown back a little. From her hair came the perfume of distant oases. Her lips were moist, and her neck was like a jasmine. Harmon, she continued in a tone as low as were she speaking to herself, we have come into our own. And then the caress passed from his sleeve, her hand fell from his shoulder. She glided from him with the motion of a swan. Come to me when you return, she added. Her face had lost its pallor. It was flushed, but her voice was brave. Yet soon when the door closed behind him, her courage faltered. In the eyes of him whose name she bore, and to whom for the first time she had made offer of her love, she had seen no answering affection, merely a look which a man might give who wins a long-contested game of chess. But presently she reassured herself. If at the avowal her husband had seemed triumphant, in very truth, what was he else? She turned to a mirror that separated the windows and gazed at her own reflection. Perhaps he did think the winning a triumph. Many another would have thought so, too. She was entirely in white. Her arms and neck were unjeweled. I look like a bride, she told herself, and then, with the helplessness of regret, she remembered that brides wear orange blossoms, but she had none. The idler in Paris is apt to find Sunday evenings dull. There are many houses open, it is true, but not infrequently the idler is disinclined to receptions, and as to the theatres, it is bourgeois to visit them. There is, therefore, little left save the clubs, and on this particular Sunday evening, when Mr. Incool and Blydenburg entered the Capucine, they found it tolerably filled. A lackey in silk knee-breeches and livery of pale blue came to take their coats. 
It was not, however, until Blydenburg had been helped off with his that he noticed that Mr. Incoul had preferred to keep his own on. The two men then passed out of the vestibule into a room in which was a large table littered with papers, and from there into another room where a man whom Mr. Incoul recognized as Dilatdesh was dozing on a lounge, and finally a room was reached in which most of the members had assembled. "'It reminds me of a hotel,' said Blydenburg. "'It is,' his friend answered shortly. He seemed preoccupied, as were he looking for someone or something, and presently, as they approached a green table about which a crowd was grouped, Blydenburg pulled him by the sleeve. "'That's young Lee dealing,' he exclaimed. To this Mr. Incoul made no reply. He put his hand in a lower outside pocket of his overcoat and assured himself that a little package which he had placed there had not become disarranged. On hearing his name, Lennox looked up from his task. A Frenchman who had just entered the room nodded affably to him and asked if he were lucky that evening. Lucky? cried someone who had caught the question. I should say so. His luck is something insolent. He struck a match a moment ago and it lit. The whole room roared. French matches are like French cigars in this. There is nothing viler. It is just possible that the parental republic has views of its own as to the injuriousness of smoking, and seeks to discourage it as it would a vice. But this is as it may be. Everyone laughed in Lennox with the others. Mr. Incoul caught his eye and bowed to him across the table. Blydenburg had already smiled and bowed in the friendliest way. He did not quite care to see Mrs. Manhattan's brother dealing at Baccarat. But after all, when one is at Rome... "'Do you care to play?' Mr. Incoul asked. "'Humph! I must go a louis or two for a flyer.' They had both been standing behind the croupier, but Mr. Incoul then left his companion, and passing around the table stopped at a chair which was directly on Lennox's left. In this chair a man was seated, and before him was a small pile of gold. As the cards were dealt, the gold diminished, and when it dwindled utterly and at last disappeared, the man rose from his seat, and Mr. Incoul dropped in it. From the overcoat pocket in which he had previously felt, he drew out a number of thousand-franc notes. They were all unfolded, and under them was a little package. The notes, with the package beneath them, were placed by Mr. Incoul, where the pile of gold had stood. One of the notes he then threw out in the semicircle. A man seated next to him received the cards, which Lennox dealt. "'I give,' Lennox called in French. "'Card,' the man answered. It was a face card that he received. Six, Lennox announced. Mr. Incoul's neighbor could boast of nothing. The next cards that were dealt on that end of the table went to a man beyond. Mr. Incoul knew that did that man not hold higher cards than the banker, the cards in the succeeding deal would come to him. He took a handful of notes and reached them awkwardly enough across the space from which Lennox dealt. For one second his hand rested on the talion, and then he said, Ah, cheval, which, being interpreted, means half on one side and half on the other. The croupier took the notes and placed them in the proper position. Nine, Lennox called. He had one at both ends of the table. The croupier drew in the stakes with his rake. Gentlemen, he droned, make your game. Mr. Incoul pushed out five thousand francs. The next cards on the left were dealt to him. Nine, Lennox called again, and then a very singular thing happened. The croupier leaned forward to draw in Mr. Incoul's money, but just as the rake touched the notes, Mr. Incoul drew them away. Monsieur, exclaimed the croupier. The eyes of everyone were upon him. 
He pushed his chair back and stood up, holding in his hand the two cards which had been dealt him. Then, throwing them down on the table, he said very quietly, but in a voice that was perfectly distinct, These cards are marked. A moment before, the silence had indeed been great, but during the moment that followed Mr. Incool's announcement, it was so intensified that it could be felt. Then, abruptly, words leapt from the mouths of the players and bystanders. The croupier turned, protesting his innocence of any complicity. There may have been some who listened, but if there were any such, they were few. The entire room was sonorous with loud voices. The hubbub was so great that it woke De La Deche. He came in at one door rubbing his eyes. At another a crowd of lackeys, startled at the uproar, had suddenly assembled. And by the chair which he had pushed from him, and which had fallen backwards to the ground, Mr. Incool stood, motionless, looking down at Lennox Lee. In the abruptness of the accusation, Lennox had not immediately understood that it was directed against him. But when he looked into the inimical faces that fronted and surrounded him, when he heard the anger of the voices, when he saw hands stretched for the cards which he dealt, and impatient eyes examining their texture, and when at last, though the entire scene was compassed in the fraction of a minute, when he heard an epithet and saw that he was regarded as a Greek, he knew that the worst that could be had been done. He turned, still sitting, and looked his accuser in the face, and in it he read a message which to all of those present was to him alone intelligible. He bowed his head. In a vision like to that which is said to visit the last moments of a drowning man, he saw it all. The reason of Maida's unexplained departure, the coupling of Merette with a servant, and this supreme reproach made credible by the commonest of tricks, the application of a cataplasm a new deck of cards, on those already in use. It was vengeance indeed. He sprang from his seat. He was a handsome fellow, and the pallor of his face made his dark hair seem darker and his dark eyes more brilliant. It is a plot, he cried. He might as well have asked alms of statues. The cards had been examined. The maquillage was evident. Put him out! A hundred voices were shouting, A la porte! Suddenly the shouting subsided and ceased. Lennox craned his neck to discover who his possible defender might be, and caught a glimpse of De La Deche, brushing with one finger some ashes from his coat sleeve, and looking about him with an indolent, deprecatory air. Gentlemen, he heard him say, the committee will act in the matter. Meanwhile, for the honor of the club, I beg you will not increase the scandal. He turned to Lennox and said with perfect courtesy, Sir, do me the favor to step this way. Through the parting crowd, Lennox followed the duke. In crossing the room, he looked about him. On his way, he passed the Frenchman who had addressed him five minutes before. The man turned aside. He passed other acquaintances. They all seemed suddenly smitten by the disease known as Nolemetanger. In the doorway was May. Of him he felt almost sure. But the brute drew back. Really, he said, I must expostulate. Expostulate and be damned, Lennox gnashed at him. I am as innocent as you are. In an outer room, where he presently found himself, De La Deche stood lighting a cigar. That difficult operation terminated, he said slowly, with that rise and fall of the voice which is peculiar to the Parisian, when he wishes to appear impressive. You had better go now, and if you will permit me to offer you a bit of advice, I would recommend you to send a resignation to any clubs of which you may happen to be a member. He touched a bell. A lackey appeared. Maxim? Get this gentleman's coat and see him to the door. End of chapter 15 This recording by Matt Butcher, P.
Peoria, Illinois, please visit my blog at mattbutchershop.blogspot.com.